Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 22, Astronaut Health. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all the coolest people. We bring them right here on the show to tell you about more everything NASA. So today we're talking about astronaut health with Natasha Cho. She's a flight surgeon here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and she gave a great description about what a flight surgeon does and how they work with astronauts to monitor their health during spaceflight. So thanks to future Dr. Spaceman for the suggestion on Twitter for an episode with a flight surgeon. If you have suggestions for the topic you'd like to hear on the show, let us know. Uh, You can find where to submit everything at the end of every episode. No, I'm not going to reveal it right up front. you got to listen to the whole thing. Plus, this is a really good conversation anyway. You're going to really enjoy it. So, with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Natasha Cho. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Now, we'll start with something happy. Natasha, thanks so much for coming on the show. Ran into your profile as part of uh, Peggy's NASA Village project. You were one of the many people that supported Peggy Whitson, right, during her flight. So how was it? What was it like working with the Space Ninja? So I think as anyone who works with Peggy will tell you, she is awesome at what she does. Um, and she's just a joy to watch. Uh, plus, she's a wonderful person, which just makes it even better. So oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, definitely. Just in the few interactions I've had with her where, you know, interviews or her dealing with media, just, you know, sitting down in a chair with a lot of people looking at her, lights, yeah. cameras, and she's just laughing, having a good time. It's just, you know, you really appreciate that when you're on when you're on the behind-the-scenes yep. stuff and you know the pressure that goes into it. But you were, uh, for supporting her, you're a flight surgeon, right? So I wasn't assigned to her as her crew surgeon, but um, I was, after her landing, her in uh, Two Fish, um, I was the physician on the NASA aircraft that brought them back to Houston. Oh, okay. So you were out, um, you were out in Kazakhstan then? So actually, this landing happened right after Harvey. And because of the multiple personnel impacts um, that NASA had, including um, to our aircraft operations division, we weren't able to get our aircraft staged in Kazakhstan in time for their landing. So what happened was um, we got the help from the European Space Agency. So they had an aircraft and they went and got our crew in Kazakhstan, brought them back to Cologne, Germany, ESA headquarters. um, And then we went to Cologne to pick up our crew there. Okay. So that was like a total modified, yeah. <laughs> unexpected Very director different. turn operation. Yeah. So you went from Houston to Germany then. Yeah. Okay. And you were, so you were, so what is, um, what is that? What's a doctor on call? Is that, that's the, that's what you uh, said, right? We call it the air dock. Air dock. Yeah. Okay, cool. So NASA has uh, an aircraft that we use to bring back our crew from landing mm-hmm. within 24 hours. And the, the purpose of that is just so uh, the science and research folks can get data um, as soon as possible once the crew return, uh, just because there's a lot of physiologic changes that happen, mm. um, you know, not only right after landing, but in the, the hours and days that follow. Okay. Yeah, and you have to just kind of... So what's your job? Your job is to monitor it, to record it, to help it? We do take some samples and stuff in flight on return, um, but, you know, the crew can be... Um, pretty symptomatic in terms of like returning to a 1G environment and so we kind of 
um, mitigate a lot of the symptoms that they're having, motion sickness, that type of thing, um, okay. in the early hours post-landing. So now you're a you're a flight surgeon now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who's your crew member that you're working so with? So currently I'm assigned to Jeanette Epps, and she's launching next uh, spring. Okay. Okay. So you, what's some of the stuff you have to do this early ahead of time? So right now, uh, we just did her um, L minus six months physical, make sure that you know she's still within uh, standards for long duration spaceflight. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually out of the country right now because in this part of the the pre-launch time frame, uh, she and Alex Kirst, her ESA crew member, and then Sergei Prokopiev, their Russian crew member, they're all serving as the backup crew to the prime crew that's launching this December. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're out there with Scott Tingle and yep. Kanai and yep. those guys. Okay, cool. Very cool. Um, so you're, you are you don't have to follow them for that then. You get to stay here. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of just like pre-travel prep, making sure all of us, mm-hmm. including the docs, are up on our immunizations for, you know, upcoming travel. Um, in the next few months before launch, we'll also get together with her and our pharmacy um, and make sure that she's got any prescription meds she takes on a regular basis um, put in these... Uh, ISS medical accessory packs or people take, you know, nutritional supplements or daily vitamins or whatever. Like we make sure that all that is packed for them and any motion sickness meds they might need on the way up. Okay. So how long have you been in the flight director or not flight director, flight surgeon role? Um, so I got hired on full time here a little over two and a half years ago. Okay, cool. All right. So let's, let's back up, um, just a little bit from, from all this and talk about, what is a flight surgeon, right? <laughs> let's start with, let's, let's do that. Yeah, so I got to tell you, it is the coolest yet most misleading job title there is because <laughs> we don't fly in space uh, and the vast, vast majority of us aren't actual surgeons. Uh, what a flight surgeon is, is a medical doctor who takes care of pilots and astronauts. Okay. Uh, but the job title is a total misnomer. It's kind of like, I think of it like the surgeon general. Of the United States, right? So most of them these days aren't actual surgeons. Uh, so for those who are listening who aren't military buffs, basically dating back to like early wars, actual surgeons were the predominant type of medical doctor on the battlefield. And mm. then that term has stuck in the military and NASA. Um, uh, and the flight part of the job title indicates, you know, that we take care of pilots and astronauts, but it also implies that we have at least some uh, flying experience ourselves, either as private pilots, student pilots, um, or, you know, riding in the backseat of the T-38, the NASA training jet, along with our crew members. So um, that flight experience is actually key to understanding the physiology of the flight environment that our patients experience, uh, as well as the psychology and the human factors aspect of, like, how they interface with engineering design and aircraft controls. Um, and all that's especially important for maintaining crew safety. How about that? So yeah. what are some of the main differences then? Like, what what separates, you know, what makes you have that flight thing? What are some of the considerations whenever... I guess the human body is in flight. Right. So um, in flight, depending on the different types of maneuvers you're going to be doing, like it, uh, if you've been to an air show, yeah, um, aerobatic pilots um, can do you know crazy a lot stuff. of high G maneuvers, and yeah. depending on the order in which they do them, it can change. You know, blood rushing to your head versus blood rushing to your feet, and if you do that <laughs> in a very provocative way, you run the risk of um, what pilots refer to as graying out or blacking out. And losing consciousness momentarily. Oh. So you never want those types of incapacitating events to happen in flight. Definitely and that's not. Def- what we try and prevent. Um, another big thing that we learn about is hypoxia, right? So lack of oxygen. Hmm. And so if your cabin, for whatever reason, depressurizes and you are, um, you know, at the equivalent of tens of hundreds of feet, you know, above sea level, that's going to feel a lot different than 
um, a cabin that's pressurized to a more normal environment. So our regular aircraft that all of us fly commercially, like a, a Southwest aircraft, for example, is pressurized to 8,000 feet. And most of us can tolerate that. But mm-hmm. if you have a depressurization and all of a sudden you're at the equivalent of 30,000 feet, obviously <laughs> your time of useful consciousness or the <laughs> amount of time it's going to take before you pass out because you there's not enough oxygen up there at that altitude is, you know, goes down to seconds. Wow. So those are the types of things that um, we have to learn about. And then, you know, we train along with crew to understand what our particular symptoms are in that situation. Cause it can be a little bit different for different people. Some people get a little bit loopy. Some people um, have spotty vision. Some people get shaky. It really depends. Oh yeah. There's, um, is that, is is a hypobaric chamber? What's hypobaric. The, yep. Hypobaric, where they actually, they'll do that, right? Exactly. You'll, yep. you'll go in there, they'll bring down the pressure, and they'll just, like, watch you and then write down some stuff. I actually had a friend that did that. She was, works in the MVL, and uh, hers was actually, she said she nothing happened to her. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And she's like, no. It's actually bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And it's because, right, you need to figure out your symptoms. Right, so, and if you don't have any symptoms, you could pass out like that. And we never want that to happen when you're at the controls of an aircraft or, yes. you know, if you're on an EVA and that happens for whatever reason. So Okay. So do you understand when you're a flight surgeon, you understand the what happens for your the crew members that you're taking care of? Right. And another thing um, that they do in training is um, a CO2 exposure class. So carbon dioxide. Um, is different on station than it is on Earth, right? The levels are different. Because Mm -hmm. here on Earth, if a room gets stuffy, we can just open the window. Can't really do that on station. So crew are exposed to about eight minutes of carbon dioxide. It's basically they're breathing into a bag and they're rebreathing their their own expired air during these eight minutes. Um, And they write down their symptoms for that as well. And that's really important because if levels tend to creep up on station... um, they have an idea from this exposure class, um, you know, what their symptoms are and whether it's potentially attributable to, attributable to the CO2 levels on station. Wow. There's a lot of tests for being a flight <laughs> surgeon where they just put you through the ringer. All right, yeah. well, we're going to deprive you of, like, a pressure and see what happens. All right, keep breathing your own CO2, see what happens. What other kinds of tests are there like that? Um, well, I've definitely done the hypobaric, cha- hypobaric chamber um you know, hypoxia demonstration yeah. more times than I can count now. So I think I've lost enough brain cells oh, no. <laughs> at this point. Um, but, you know, a lot of it, too, is, is written tests and stuff as you're going through, like, medical specialty training. So Okay. Yeah. Because I know, like, they, they do egress training for um, – I've seen the ones for Orion, I think, where they actually yes. jump in. And I don't know if there's some health considerations there for where a flight surgeon would be for that test. There are. So, you know, Orion's supposed to splash down in the water. Yeah. And after you've been in space for a long time, that rocking motion in the spacecraft can be really provocative oh, yeah. when you're already motion sick. And so, um, you know, there's certain parameters as to how much rocking we would like versus versus not and, um, you know, what all that is going to look like. So yeah. people are way smarter than me are working on that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're, when you're assigned a crew member... What at what point do you start working with them, and at what point do you kind of say you're done, and you kind of can go on to the next crew member or something? So we usually get assigned to them about a year in advance or so. Okay. Um, of their launch. Of their launch. Mm. Yeah, it can be as soon as like as early as 18 months pre-launch. Oh. Um, and so it definitely ramps up like exponentially the closer you get to launch. 
Um, like I mentioned, if you know, if you're in Star City as the physician, then you're supporting them through some of the Russian medical training that they do there. Um, when they're here doing training in the NBL, you're at the NBL during uh, their suited run. Um, we also support their vacuum chamber runs in Building 7, which is where they test their EVA suit and make sure that it functions at vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's on the medical side, there's actually a lot of medical training that the crew get because there's no requirement right now that there's a, a physician on station. Mm-hmm. Um, but each uh, expedition is assigned to CMOs or chief medical officers, and those are... Um, U.S. OS crew members who um, have a, a little bit of additional medical training. And so huh. that can include, you know, putting in stitches or temporary dental fillings if needed, those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got, we work with really talented nurses who help train our crew on how to draw their own blood, how to start IVs, all that type of thing. Oh, okay. Yep. And a lot of them are doing studies like that just normally, right? Like Some of it is research-based, yeah. Some research-based stuff, yep. I guess, besides the medical side. But, right. Okay. So then you... If they if there's no physician on the station, mm-hmm. the backup is to have a physician on the ground, right? That's right. the that's the normal way of doing things. Right. And flight surgeons sit in mission control. Mm-hmm. So is that part of like how often are you doing that? So uh, when you're assigned to a mission, you're on console uh, a few times out of the week, and you, and that's only because you rotate with other. Uh, crew surgeons who are working that same expedition. Oh, okay. So you're, it's not just you, it's like a no, team. No, it's of like folks. a team of four, oh, right? So, right. like, each Soyuz launch, um, on the NASA side at least, has one prime crew surgeon and one deputy crew surgeon who's their backup, essentially. And then um, it's usually two Soyuz crews at a time. And so that's what makes up the, the four docks that kind of rotate sitting console. There you go. Yeah. So, what are you looking at when you're on console? Um, so, on console on a regular day, uh, we mostly focus on the the station, what we call the bioenvironmentals. I like to call it the vital signs of station, right? Ah. So, like, what's the CO2 level today? Like, what's the pressure? Um, you know, in the modules that the crew is working in, um, what's the O2 level, um, what's the temperature, what's the humidity. And then we look at their uh, timeline every day. So as you probably know, the schedule for each crew member is <laughs> planned out to like fi- five minute increments. Oh, yeah. So there's always reviews of plans for, you know, the current day, one day out, three days out, seven days out. And so we're just verifying to make sure that, you know, everyone's got two hours of exercise blocked off um, mm-hmm. that, you know, on most days, unless there's an extenuating circumstance, everyone's eating lunch together because that's really good for, you know, crew psychology. Yeah. Um, and then making sure that there's nothing, you know, that's unnecessarily interrupting um, sort of their wind down period at the end of the day before they go to sleep. It's kind of like if you got called about something for work at like nine o'clock at night. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? So no, we try and like really minimize <laughs> that kind of thing. And then um, overall, we also have to approve um, any overages to their kind of weekly duty hours hmm. to make sure that they're not you know, at risk of burning out for like working too long of a week. And so if, if that ever happens, um, we have weekly meetings with the flight director to make sure that, um, that time is made up the following week if they get a day off or some time off, um, subsequently. So you must be really close with the astronauts then because you're the one that actually protects them from working. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, the, yeah, the role of the flight doc these days, um, you know, back in, World War One, when flight docks first started, um, I feel like there was a little bit of animosity, right? Like oh. between flight docks and, and military flyers, because you know the best that you could ever do is come out even from an appointment with your flight doc. You know, the worst <laughs> that you could come out is that they would ground you for some medical reason. But oh. these days, it's a lot more. Um, we're definitely 
their advocate, right, and want to make sure that um, we create an environment that um, is conducive of them, you know, flying happily and safely and healthily. Yeah. I mean, what what is what does a flight surgeon do to make sure that they are in a state of mind where they can perform hundreds of experiments and, and, and do all the tasks that are assigned to them on a daily basis? So that's actually... Um, something that our behavioral health and performance group um, focuses on um, and we work in consultation with them but essentially we've got crew psychologists and crew psychiatrists um, that are assigned to each crew member Um, and then Hmm. you know before their mission they meet with them on a regular basis and then during the mission um, they have what they call PPCs or private psychological conferences every couple of weeks Hmm. Uh, and those docs also will um, be in touch with the crew member's family uh, especially um, after events like Harvey, right? Something totally unplanned, and that can be a huge stressor for um, for folks on orbit and their family members on the ground. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, they're very good about, you know, before astronauts are even selected, like screening for people who are psychologically, you know, very stable. Um, once they're selected, making sure that they have all the resources they have pre-mission, during mission. They talk about, you know, if there's bad news, how do you want it to be delivered? Who do you want to deliver the news? How do you want them to deliver it? So um, that group is really, I think, paramount to crew well-being mm-hmm. um, and then keeping the family members uh, in the loop as well with yeah. communi- regular communication. So that's that. That's not flight surgeon job then? Is, no, it's, it's more, totally yeah, it's BHP. BHP. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. What what qualifies an astronaut as being able to go to space medically healthy? So uh, what we look for is overall medical fitness for the stressors of spaceflight, and that okay. begins, like I mentioned, like with you know uh, selection criteria during the application process. So once they're selected, if they have an illness or an injury, um, we get them treatment and the special specialty care that they need, uh, mm-hmm. and then we have an air medical board that actually reviews their case files on a regular basis to recertify them for flight if they happen to be grounded for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, it's actually similar to how the military and the FAA medically certify their pilots. Um, and as a taxpayer, for those of you listening out there, so uh, these processes are also um, in existence to help keep the general public safe. So. Hmm. In general, the FAA has a role to keep the risk of a pilot having an incapacitating medical event to less than 1%. All right. Um, So we kind of follow very similar standards. Um, But in order for crew to stay healthy, essentially, they have to train, right? So... (laughs) (laughs) um, so like I mentioned, we work re- really talented physical trainers, psychiatrists, psychologists, pharmacists, nurses, um, to make sure that our crew are not only physically and mentally ready for long-duration spaceflight, but they're also capable to administer medical care to each other if necessary. Okay. Um, are you overseeing their their workouts and stuff like that, or is that a totally different thing? So that's um, the job of our ACERs. So uh-huh. those are astronaut strength, conditioning, and rehab specialists. Ah. Uh, that's their personal trainers, essentially. Okay. So when crew go to orbit, they are actually given what we call an exercise prescription. Huh. Um, and they've got different goals that they can work towards and, and modify if needed in space. And all of that essentially is part of our, it's actually, I think, one of our most successful countermeasures, right, is maintaining your bone and muscle mass. So we yeah. know that maintaining your muscle mass with resistive exercises um, and getting some sort of impact um, exercise, like on the treadmill, um, is really helpful 
in preventing bone loss and, and muscle weakness post-flight. Yeah, definitely. What about, you said there was a pharmaceutical component to there. Are they making sure that they get doses of certain medicines to stay healthy? Like, I don't know if they do calcium supplements or something like that. Um, so we actually, yeah, we have a great pharmacy here at JSC. Okay. Um, and... Pharmacy helps pack any, you know, regular prescription meds that people fly with. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition, you know, they can let us know. There's been some research. There's hasn't been enough. But, you know, certain meds just don't do well in space for reasons that we still don't completely understand. So some some medications, if they're in liquid form, will bubble or foam too much to be of any use in space. It's harder to draw them up in a syringe because you don't have that air same air fluid separation that you do with gravity. Hmm. So we can't fly those meds because it's it wouldn't be useful. <laughs> right. Um, but you, they're probably meds that you would need, right? So is there a workaround? So there are alternative meds that we can fly instead I see. in the meantime. And then we also have medical kits on station with Tylenol and ibuprofen and things like that if people happen to, to need those during their mission. So those that's kind of the essential, like, if you're going to fly, this is probably what you're going to need. You yeah. know, like the, the stuff like that, just in case yeah. some small thing were to come up oh we got a slight headache boom right. you're good to go exactly okay cool what else besides Tylenol I guess that they would that they would need um, there's antibiotics on board if there's you know any sort of infection mm. um, but it's also you know kind of like what you have in your kitchen kitchen cabinet or sorry ah. in your bathroom cabinet so <laughs> Pepto yeah you know those types of things okay yeah. cool but I can t the quarantine process is actually pretty interesting. Oh, so yeah. I haven't been through that yet myself. Um, I'm the prime doc for Jeanette, so I'll be in quarantine with her. But essentially, we um, go from Star City, Russia, you know, where they train with the Russians, and the entire crew then flies down to Baikonur, Kazakhstan together. Okay. And then uh, the prime crew and their prime docs um, will be in quarantine in Kazakhstan for about two weeks leading up to launch. And hmm. so every day, you know, we take um, temperatures and do a quick physical exam. And um, there's an epide a Russian epidemiologist down there who's really strict about, you know, who he lets in to visit the crew and stuff. So no kids under 12, that type of thing. Uh, um, and anyone who does want to visit the crew has to, you know, have, you know, written evidence of like three days of like no fevers. And wow. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Pretty. I mean, it's, it is strict for that reason, right? right. They don't want to bring anything Correct. up there. So yep. what's the quarant Have you been in the quarantine environment? As no, a this will okay. be, um, I visited it, but I haven't stayed there. Oh, yep. so for Jeanette's launch, that'll be the first time you're right. going to do it. Okay. Yeah. So I've toured it. Um, there, oh, okay. there's like a gym, um, you know, there's a place where they eat meals together and they have, um, folks who are in quarantine with them, like cooks who stay there and, and cook for them okay. as well. So who have also gotten the check. Yeah, mark, exactly. Like, yeah, they can stay there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a little place for them to live for, for how long? Before? About two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's longer than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't want anything to develop. How about that? Right. And then, you know, obviously flu vaccinations, depending on what time of year you're launching are important for everyone mm. going downrange to have as well. Absolutely. All right, so then they're quarantined, and then they go up to the International Space Station. You said they have very limited training when it comes to, they, you know, they could do small things. Mm -hmm. But um, what sorts of things do you prepare for and prepare your crew members for for an emergency? Um, so actually they go through what we call mega code training. And so this would be like worst case scenario, right? Like if someone needs CPR. Uh, so yeah. we work again with our, um, our nurse trainers, typically they're nurses with ER backgrounds. And then the flight surgeon as well is, um, watching the crew kind of go through this training after they've had a few sessions of hands-on, um, you know, training with us prior. So, 
Um, and this is done in the, the ISS mock-up, actually. And so we have an AED on station mm-hmm. if needed. Um, and so they run through, you know, a, a very modified but basic algorithm that they would go through in that situation. All right. Yeah. So... Okay. And and you'll in this situation are you on console helping them out? Yes. So yeah. we would um you know, we always have a crew surgeon on console um during normal working hours and then we're on call the rest of the time when we're assigned to that mission. Oh, okay. So if we're not sitting console on a regular shift, we would get called in for that. All right. So yeah. no vacations. Then. You, gotta <laughs> stick, you gotta stick around in case someone yeah. gets pulled in. But that's yeah. good, right? Because then, you know, the crew members flying know that all right, right in case of an emergency, I know my exactly. my flight surgeon is going to be there um so whenever you're designing you know procedures i guess to do do you you know practice knowing about microgravity like okay the aed is going to have to we're going to have to do it this way because you know you can't just lay someone down maybe strap them down or something like that right so we actually have a crew medical restraint system on station okay and so um the crew know you know to to put an incapacitated crew member there so that you know they don't float away it's a lot <laughs> different than it would be on earth and so yes all our procedures are written to um to account for the microgravity environment okay cool yeah. is there any um any concerns from the flight surgeon area some unique things that flight surgeons in at nasa have to deal with that maybe other uh flight surgeons and the military don't have to worry about because of the microgravity environment so the biggest thing i'd say like you mentioned is um you know medications especially like liquids that don't separate from air and so we're still trying to figure out you know how to how to work around that for meds that we do want to fly but currently can't okay yeah so it's really just the limitations yeah and so you know there are there are industry filters and stuff that um that neonatal ICUs and that type of thing um, have worked with, and those could potentially be helpful. Cool. So, um, flight surgeons, I'm trying to th- think about, like, your your total duties, and they seem they seem pretty widespread, right? Yeah. Like, so you're working with the crew before they launch, when they launch, in mission control. You even talked about some travel, right? You were flying mm-hmm. out to Germany. Have you been to Kazakhstan or Russia, too? Yeah, so um, I'm one of the contractor docs, and so okay. part of my job is to be in Star City, Russia, where the crew train on Soyuz systems. Okay. Um, and so I'm there two to three months out of the year, Um and that's actually really fun. I kind of like that. It's a very, like, family environment, and oh, um, cool. the crew um, get together at night, and we have family dinners and things like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's nice and tight-knit. I, yep. Like, where, family dinners where? Like, is where they're staying? Or? Yeah, where they're staying. Okay. Yep. And then, um, so I've been to Russia for that, and then, yes, I've been to Kazakhstan for a landing as, as the air dock again on the, the NASA aircraft. Cool. Yeah. NASA aircraft. So that was that... Um, uh, the G3? It was a G3, now it's a G5. G5. Okay, so then that's the one they take from from where to where? From Kazakhstan to Houston, and that's the direct return, what we call direct return within 24 hours of Soyuz landing. Oh, okay. So you're just watching the recently landed astronauts and kind of taking care of them? Yeah. Very cool. Did you take some of the helicopters out to the landing site? Um, I have not, actually. So I was on a Russian helicopter for... um, Kate Rubin's launch. That was her deputy crew surgeon. Oh, okay. And so for launch, the prime crew dock is, you know, near the uh, launch site with the guests and family members. And then the backup dock or the deputy dock, which was myself, is in a um, Russian search and rescue helicopter. In the mm-hmm. event that there's any sort of like launch abort scenario, mm-hmm. um, we would be the ones to fly out to wherever the capsule would have aborted to. Oh, okay. Yeah. First responders, boom, exactly. you're going. Yep. 
All right, but you actually did. You said you flew in a helicopter for Kate Rubin's landing. So you stay on. They have the blade spinning, but you're staying on the tarmac. Got it. Until you get verification that they've reached orbit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So what do you have to? What do you have to study? What do you have to do to be a flight surgeon? Like, what's your background? Yeah. So um, my background is emergency medicine. Hmm. Um, and then to work at NASA as a flight surgeon, you need to do an additional residency, and that's medical leaves for specialty training. Yeah. Um, and that residency has to be in aerospace medicine, not flight surgery. That's not a thing. Yeah. Um, so the expectation, essentially, is that you're a competent physician in whatever your chosen specialty is. Okay. Um, before you pursue aerospace medicine because it's such a small and specialized field. Yeah. Um, I get a lot of questions actually from med students asking what they should specialize in if they want to become a NASA flight surgeon. And I always say just choose what you love because if you love it, you're going to do it better. And that's what people are going to notice. And that's when doors are going to open to you. Um, because we've had neurologists, urologists, OBGYNs become flight surgeons and work here. So it's all about what you enjoy doing. Yeah, because they were really good. At, and you said yours was emergency medicine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was uh, what was that? What were you doing before, before NASA then in emergency medicine? Um, I actually went straight from emergency medicine residency to the UTMB aerospace medicine training program. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was just working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All in right. In the hospital before, uh, before doing the aerospace uh, program. All right. Yeah. So then what was the aerospace program? How did that, how did you translate emergency medicine into an aerospace environment? Like what was different? How did I transition it? Um, yeah. I guess the emergency part applies to aerospace medicine in the event of, um, you know, like a mishap. I see. Right? So, or planning uh, for a mishap, but not necessarily hoping that that's what happens, right? So it's all about preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. Um, So emergency medicine, background-wise, can help you figure out what equipment you might need to pack or what equipment you can leave behind. Uh. Um, What type of personnel and staffing and other resources you might need at different stages of, like, a, a rescue scenario. Yeah, because I guess you would have to operate assuming that you might have to do something maybe right. on a site, you know, so you're going to have to bring everything with yeah. you or something like that. And you always have to think one step ahead, right? So, like, let's say I do this first step and it works, um, but then something else, you know, changes with the patient after that. Then what do I do? And so you have to kind of work out these mental alg- algorithms as to every possible scenario. Hmm. Okay. And then from there, you kind of came into the world of NASA, I guess, through... Yeah, so the UTMB Aerospace Medicine Program um, is actually uh, joint with NASA. And so we do some of our rotations here when we um, are in training. Um, And so one of the ones is working, uh, is rotating through the flight medicine clinic. And so you're doing some of the astronaut physicals at that time. Hmm. Um, And then um, you've got other projects operationally that are given to you by different preceptors and mentors. Um, One of my favorite ones was actually doing a one month rotation with the BHP psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, Just because it's not my specialty. And so I still find it like super interesting though to, to work with them and see you know, the types of issues that they, they deal with um, and then mm-hmm. interface with the, the operational flight docs on. All right. Very cool. And now now you're here at NASA. Now you're a flight surgeon. What's, I, 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 it seems like, you know, like I said before, your duties are widespread and you're all over the place. But what's like a, what's like a day-to-day sort of in the life of a, of a flight surgeon? Yeah, so it's funny. People are always asking me, they're like, what's a typical day for you? And I'm yeah. like, well, 
I, I wouldn't say we have typical days. I would say we have typical weeks, but every day can be a little bit different. So we are in an engineering um, community, right? So we're the minority, and a lot of times we're looked to as medical consultants. And with Station being as complex of a program as it is, um, there are a lot of meetings with all these different disciplines to make sure that we're doing the right thing and maintaining the health and safety of the crew um, at the top. So yeah. uh, a lot of times... You know, I'll have a day that's nothing but meetings <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> with, you know, potentially questions for me about making, you know, just verifying that, like, what we're doing isn't medically contraindicated or um, unsafe in any way. You know, another day I might have um, my crew member doing a suited run in the NBL, and so I'll be there observing that. Um, you know, and another day I might have a couple meetings in the morning, and then um, in the afternoon my crew member will have some training, medical training, that I'll be attending and just making sure that if they have any questions that I'm there. Okay. Yeah. It seems like your role is more, is more operational, right? So yeah. if something's happening, like boom, you're mm-hmm. there. So the neutral buoyancy laboratory, that's a good one, right? That one's where the astronauts actually get suited up and practice doing a spacewalk in the pool. Exactly. Right. So what, what's your role? Do you go behind the scenes and kind of check them out beforehand afterwards, or is it more, you're just kind of standing by watching? Yeah. So everyone who goes in the pool gets a dive physical beforehand. Dive physical. And okay. then, um, during the run, which is typically about six hours, yeah. um, I'll be on the loop just listening and making sure, you know, if there's any medical concerns, they can always request a private loop with um, the NBL medical director. Hmm. Um, but as they're assigned flight surgeon, it's always good for us to be there as well, just so we're aware of any issues. Yeah. See, privacy is pretty important when it comes to this stuff, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So th- that your job is is kind of is kind of like that, right? You Wherever you do, you have to make sure that you are protecting the privacy of the astronaut's medical information. So um, how does that work, I guess, in a, an environment where everyone's talking to each other, especially in mission control? Yeah, I guess it's not too different from the hospital environment. I think, you know, there are people who interface with us, for example, a biomedical engineer who... Um, have essentially signed the equivalent of like, you know, a HIPAA understanding of the HIPAA laws and medical privacy laws and uh, Privacy Act. Oh, because they're um, hearing some of this information too. Right. And, you know, the the ones who are involved in these types of conversations are involved because it's a need to know basis. And so that's essentially how we operate. Okay, cool. Yeah. And you guys have uh, private medical conferences with the astronauts yeah. too, right? Like every once in a while you're checking in. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, is it more of just that? It's just checking in, seeing how everything's going? Yeah, so it's once a week, um, and it's for about 15 minutes, and it's a video conference, oh, okay. um, direct to station with a crew member uh, on a private loop. Uh, and, you know, it's all documented, and, and the, the chart, the medical chart from that encounter will go into the electronic medical record. And so we can always look back and see if there's something that we've been tracking over time, you know, how it's been progressing. Um, but it is mostly a check-in, but, you know, every once in a while something will pop up. Um, th- we know that there are slight immune system changes in space, so people can get rashes or, um, you know, just feel stuffier, have allergy-type symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of times uh, that's what we deal with. Okay, so yeah. it's uh, how much of it is you know you I guess you're recording just checking in and then you know sometimes you're gonna have to deal with stuff like that right yeah. so how do you deal with it when you're down here in Mission Control but your patient is up in space yeah so that's the art of telemedicine right? <laughs> is 
you can't see and touch and feel your patient um, right. yourself. And so we rely on their pre-flight medical training that we talked about. So yeah. they're taught to use, you know, how to use a stethoscope, how to take a blood pressure, how to measure heart rate, that type of thing. Um, and then we have the magic of camera technology up there. So, you know, <laughs> they can actually look in uh, their crewmate's ear and take a picture of what that eardrum looks like and send it down to us or they can just take a picture of a rash that's developed and send that down to us and then you know during the private medical conference we can ask all the other questions we want to know how long has it been there and you know is it getting better or worse and what makes it better or worse those types of things mm -hmm. are there things that are normal for space flight like are, are there particular you know microgravity rashes or something like that that's just typical for being in a space environment or something like that um rashes can develop yeah so that's probably not uncommon and it's because airflow on station is different than on Earth, right? Like particles have weight to them here and there's constant airflow that moves things to different areas. So air doesn't, um, heavier molecules don't dissipate or, or, you know, sink the same way on station. If you're staying motionless, the air particles around you are just gonna heat up and you kind of have this like cloak of warmth, right? Or Whoa. for another example would be um, if you unpacked something and it had, you know, particles of dust, the dust isn't going to, like, fall to the ground. Always coming right up. Yeah. You. So oh. um, eye complaints can be um, a common thing that we hear about after something like that. So we've got protective equipment up there. If, if we think something's going to be particularly hazardous for them to open or unpack, we recommend that they wear goggles and that type of thing. Wow. Yeah. I would not have thought the, like, a heat shield I guess that's happen like happening because yeah. of the lack of circulation that's, that's, that's actually um, documented in uh, Lost Moon Jim Lovell's book about Apollo 13 when oh. uh, they had to turn the, a lot of the power systems off it was really cold in there but they found if they didn't move around as much their body heat actually heated the air particles around them whoa yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild to think yeah. about so that that's what I was talking about when I was asking, like, what are some of the microgravity mm. things that are just different? That's perfect. That's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. I would have <laughs> never thought, like, so so if you just stay still, you stay warm because you're kind of moving. It's just a different air environment. Yeah. How about that? So I guess, are you the one in charge? So if they are unpacking something, for example, like you say, hey, you definitely have to wear goggles for this or something like that. It actually depends on who owns the hardware. Ah. Um, but there's a lot of um, other system interfaces that I'm not privy to that I think um, come into play. And the biomedical engineer helps us out with that as well. Mm -hmm. So they kind of biomedical engineers essentially are what we call them the, the nuts and bolts. They work with the nuts and bolts of medical hardware. Right. So if the ultrasound machine breaks, they troubleshoot that. If the human breaks for whatever reason, <laughs> like that's our job. We're the yeah. blood and guts. <laughs> the yeah. Blood and gut. yeah. But the rashes going back to the rashes. So, oh, the, yeah. Um, the reason sometimes rashes develop is, so back to our example of unpacking something that's new, maybe it's off-gassing some sort of particles, and those particles, if they're not circulating in the air the same way that they do on Earth, can sort of linger in one space, maybe near your skin or something, and that sort of exposure with, um, I guess, not as efficient airflow as you would have on Earth may make the skin react a little bit. Hmm. Um, but there's also, like I mentioned, some immune changes that happen, yeah. and... Um, some rashes and allergy type symptoms can be related to that as well. Oh, because your immune system isn't operating as yeah. as much, so you react, I guess, a little bit more fragile. Yeah, so we that's something we don't totally understand yet. And even on hmm. Earth, uh, the immune immunology is one of the least understood 
um, medical specialties out there. Yeah. Things are always changing. See, I don't understand why I get a flu shot sometimes, and then a month later I get the flu. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I should be completely protected. And that I know there's like, you know, changes, strands or something. So anyway, but uh, yeah, no, a lot of different things um, to, to think about, I guess, from, from your end, especially just that that's a totally different world are you are you measuring some of these things over over time and then understanding trends like are there certain trends that you've seen just from studying astronauts in space for so long um so we've got a group of epidemiologists and then folks on the research side who are um, studying particular you know body systems for example like urine chemistry or whatnot those are the ones who are typically measuring those types of trends okay yeah. So, so like so um, anything that goes into our electronic medical record, um, we can have the em- epidemiologists look at, and they can, you know, identify trends, and they can control for you know, changes in like the CAT scan machine that was used from this mission to this mission, and control for age or gender or whatnot. And so it's a lot of number crunching and uh-huh. you know doing statistics and making sure that that any trends or changes that we're seeing are statistically significant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know like. Um... You know, just understanding, thing, like, just basic, when you go to space, this is something that happens sort of things, right? So your immune system yeah, it gets a little bit weaker. Your your muscles and bones start to, you know, get a little bit weaker and disappear. So you have to build it back up and do this exercise yep. all the time. Just medical things that you have to think about, you know, the human body, how it reacts to space. And these are things, these are lessons that we can take to missions beyond low earth orbit too right to right. to station our past station to you know the moon deep space mars all of that stuff so how is the role of a flight surgeon going to change as we as the communication starts to get a little bit you know longer because when we go out to mars you're talking about when earth and mars are at their farthest point away from each other that's like a 40 something minute round trip right. for communication yeah yeah so and the question is right like um do you then have a requirement to have a doctor on board? Ah. And not only that, but what if the doctor is the one who is sick and becomes the patient? Then what, right? Because when you fly in an aircraft, you've got a pilot and a co-pilot. Mm-hmm. But if you only got one doctor, I don't know, like, is it enough for someone else to, you know, be trained as a mid-level provider, like a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner? Or is it enough to have um, just in time, like on orbit, you know, refresher training videos for an, a non-physician to be able to do a medical procedure? Hmm. Do we need, you know, minimally invasive surgery type um, capabilities on these spacecraft? Um, those are all questions that, like I said, people way smarter than me are, <laughs> are looking into and challenges <laughs> that we still need to address. Wow. Yeah, because there's, there's a lot of different considerations. Uh, we, we just did a podcast pretty recently with Orion and they were talking about um, just like for example oxygen or something right like oxygen is super important to have on the spacecraft but you can only put so many oxygen generators on the spacecraft before it becomes a little bit okay let's let's calm down you know because you have backups but you can't just make keep making backups until you're perfectly fine so same with the physicians right you can't Mm -hmm. just have like an army of doctors going to space because you know, it's just, you, you need the other things, right? You can have a doctor, but then you need, if you're doing Mars exploration, maybe a geologist, maybe an engineer, maybe a pilot, you know, you need all of the above. Nice, like, diverse group of, of, of astronauts who can do do it all in the in one mission. Yeah, and I think also the, the crew psychology is going to change a little bit. Oh, um, yeah. And so, um, 
you know, people have talked about what's the ideal crew makeup? Should they all be all one gender? Hmm. Um, should they have an even number versus an odd number? Because if you have an even number and you have a disagreement and you vote on something, what do you do if you have a tie? But if you have an odd number of crew members and there's one person who's the tiebreaker, are they then sort of, you know, like <laughs> labeled as... Yeah, you know? choosing sides exactly. of the bad guy or something. Um, and then there's questions about what kind of, what degree of assertiveness or leadership do you want in your commander versus someone who fosters more equality in, and community in a multi-month like transit phase from Earth to Mars where there's not a lot going on. So do you really want somebody who's like super dominant on you all the time about yeah. something yeah. when there's not a lot of operational things happening. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of, um, a lot of factors that are going to be, um, in play, but I think crew psychology and wellness is going to be huge. Oh yeah. I would assume that whatever crew they choose to do these deep space missions, they're going to be, you know, be able to do it all in a sense. They'll right. be super qualified people that have multiple different disciplines. And even with the most recent astronaut class, that's reflected there too. Mm-hmm. You got doctors with flight time, you got, you know, Navy SEAL slash doctor, you have uh, you know, an engineer in four different disciplines. So it's you know, you got all of these people that can that can do it all. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I guess from a flight surgeon perspective, you would probably vote more towards the the redundancy in doctor ability apps like a doctor and then someone trained mid-level with the doctor's physician or do you have a potentially different view? Okay. yeah i mean i guess i haven't really thought about it too much oh, okay. i was just kind of like throwing out ideas but <laughs> i mean it's always good you know to have backups and potentially backups to your backups so. yeah so how about whenever i mean you know we're, we're we're going out way out into space but i'm gonna pull back for just a second like your first your first time going out um over to uh, overseas to support like a crew thing. I'm only asking. I'm asking this selfishly because I'm about to go over to Kazakhstan myself. So what was what was that like? That experience of of you know working with the crew before a launch or after a landing or or y- your first time. So it actually felt very natural to me, and I think part of the reason is because I was a Peace Corps volunteer like before I went to medical school, and oh, okay. I was. I lived in that region of the world. So I was um, doing service in Turkmenistan. And so to be in Kazakhstan was almost like coming home. So I felt very comfortable. And part of that experience really turned me on to the International Space Station program because of the international cooperation part of it. Yes. So um, going over there was actually really fun for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, And as to like the actual pre-launch experience, so as the deputy crew surgeon for my first mission, um, your job is to take care of the uh, family and uh, launch guests that are invited. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some folks aren't um, uh, frequent international travelers and Kazakhstan's fairly remote. So, you know, if you've got medical conditions, you know, I was trying to remind people to bring all the prescription meds that they're going to need because we don't always necessarily have what they're going to need. Um, we do carry a, a small medical pack with us f- with like some sleep meds and, you know, allergy meds, that type of thing, um, in case it's needed. Um, and then really it's just, um, getting to know them, getting to make sure that your prime surgeon who's locked in quarantine has everything they need. (laughs) If not, you know, we can, um, arrange to, to have extra, um, supplies brought into them, you know, medically if, if they need something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the day of launch, uh, depending on what time you launch, this may happen, um, earlier or later, but I got up super early, um, with our, you always have a nurse with you, um, 
when you're going out into the field. And so we had the search and rescue forces pick us up in a van and we went to um, the remote airport where uh, their helicopter is staged to stay on the helicopter uh, and wait for launch. And then once we got word that the crew had reached orbit, then the helicopter blade stopped spinning and then we just go back to the hotel. So I, on an ideal day on launch, like you're actually not doing too much because things are working as they should. Right. Because yeah. your job is to be there. Like the helicopter blade spinning is the perfect analogy to, you know, if something goes wrong, yep. you're getting in the helicopter. Yep. Right. That is your job. Otherwise, the blade stops spinning. Right. So that's exactly cool. Wow. All right. A lot of a lot of cool stuff to do as a flight surgeon. Is there is there anything I missed about flight surgery? Because a lot of this is very foreign to me because I, um, you know, medical stuff goes like right over my head. <laughs> but uh, I try I try to do my best to to kind of summarize everything um, uh, into something that's you know that we can tell out to the world and that makes a lot of sense and kind of encapsulates the story of astronaut health. Oh, so there was one thing I was going to say. Um, so, and this is kind of like a misconception that I think is important to clear up for folks out there who are interested in becoming a flight surgeon or who are in medical school. Yeah. Um, so some flight surgeons have gone on to become astronauts and subsequently flown in space, um, but they're in the minority. So being a flight surgeon is not a shortcut <laughs> to yeah. becoming an astronaut. I'm sorry if I'm crushing any dreams out there. Yeah. Um, but we get to do a lot of what an astronaut does, except fly in space. Um, so we're with them for a lot of the training they do. And, you know, while space is no doubt the best part of being an astronaut, it's a pretty small percentage of their career. So, like, I don't feel too bad about my job. I actually love my job. And it's um, there's another doc in our group who refers to it as being, like, taking care of Lewis and Clark. Oh. Um, and so I think that's totally appropriate and it's super rewarding. Uh, we are one of the first faces they see, you know, on landing. So if you see the, the PAO shots of the crew <laughs> getting pulled out of the Soyuz, we're like the, you know, the other person in the blue flight suit, like in the corner, yeah. <laughs> like making sure that they're okay. Along with our, we've got great Russian field medical nurses that help us out with making, taking vitals and all of that. So that's right. You're there for every step of the way, <laughs> except on the international space station. That uh, is okay. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Oh really? You wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to. Oh no! I just mean you know, like I, this job is so rewarding for me oh, as yeah. is that um, I'm happy as a clam. Hey, yeah, you can't yeah. complain because you're doing you're doing some really really cool stuff. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um, yeah. Well, if you if you do you know want to be a flight surgeon slash astronaut, there is it is it Kel Lindgren? Is it Chell? Or Chell Yeah, yeah Chell Lindgren was a flight surgeon turned yep. um, astronaut. And right? Mike Barrett. Tom Marshburn, and then Serena uh, on Chancellor next year. What? Oh, all they of them? They were all previously flights. Oh, so you yeah. say it's low, but there's <laughs> quite a few. There's quite a few. And, you know, definitely a medical doctor, I think, would be up there for someone who is essential on a deep space mission. I agree. I, I definitely yeah. think, um, you know, for missions beyond, they're, they're going to be they're gonna be up there. Because the human body is like, uh, it's one of the things we're focusing on when we're doing studies on the International Space Station, right? Like yep. studies on the human body, but then it's going to be a huge factor for missions beyond because there's different things they have to worry about. And we're the most annoying variable, I would say, right? <laughs> like to, to an engineer who's focused on, you know, the spacecraft and like things being like within binary ranges, um, we have the most variables within our physiologic system to... to um, have the potential to drive folks crazy so sometimes we'll get questions you know like well what's you know how low can this temperature be or whatever like well it depends it depends on you know all these different factors and so i know that's that's hard 
to hear sometimes. Um, so, you know, we have to, to bound the question appropriately and then, you know, start from a place that's, you know, medically, ethically, um, you know, safe for the crew. And then that's your starting point to, to work from there. Yeah. Man. And it's just, it's got to be so cool just working with an astronaut throughout the whole thing. Have you ever done a zero gravity flight? Yes. Yep. That's uh, part of our training as well. All right. So that's a pre- that's pretty close to space, right? Yeah. It's like you kind of feel the microgravity. It's for thirty about thirty seconds at a time. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much exactly how I imagined it, like in my dreams as a kid. It was <laughs> it was actually super fun, and it's it felt like Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the best way I can describe wow. it. Wow. Did you uh, were you there as um, flight surgeon, like with an astronaut, or were you there for something else? Uh, I was there as like an aerospace medicine resident in training. It was oh. sort of just like an exposure flight for me. Yeah, yeah, no. it was fun. <laughs> it was super fun. All right, something definitely cool to get exposed <laughs> yeah. to, right? It's like a once in a lifetime kind of thing. That's pretty cool. I'll take that over the you know losing brain cells in the hypoxia chamber. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's something you've done multiple times. Uh, multiple zero gravity flights would be pretty cool. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, Natasha, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think this was a nice, nice overview of what a flight surgeon does and how it helps in, you know, every step of the way for Lewis and Clark. I love that analogy. That's perfect. So thanks for coming on the show and talking about what a flight surgeon does. Thanks for having me. Very cool. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Natasha Cho about uh, her role as a flight surgeon and what that has to do with astronaut health. If you kind of know what's going on in the role of human research and how that applies to spaceflight, nasa.gov slash HRP is a great resource for all of that. Everything human research and how that applies to spaceflight. If you go to nasa.gov slash ISS, you can figure out all the stuff going on in the International Space Station. A lot of that has to do with some of the human research we're doing, as we talked about in this episode. Uh, otherwise, on social media, you can follow us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Follow the International Space Station accounts. They're verified, and, you know, we got a lot of followers, so you can find us pretty easily. But uh, just use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms if you want to ask a question uh, about the show. And actually, that's where I found the recommendation for this show is actually on Twitter. So uh, um, I'm paying attention to all of that just make sure to mention it's for Houston we have a podcast and then uh, and then we'll go from there so the credits for today go to John Stoll and Alex Perryman thanks again to Dr. Natasha Cho for coming on the show this week this podcast was recorded on November 15th we'll be back next week